everyone, this is Sam Biagetti of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. So in this podcast, I've been keeping up two continuing series, each of which alternates between being public and patron only. And those are on Myths of the Month and the History of the United States and 100 Objects. And I've been thinking for a while about starting a third ongoing series to balance those out. So I'm going to try out starting another on the great archaeological finds of all time. So this will be the first installment open to the public. I'm calling this series Doorways in Time because you can think of a great archaeological find as a moment where the past and the present collide or collapse together, often in a sudden and unexpected way. They offer a kind of opening, a view onto the past, which then has to somehow be integrated into our narratives and myths. And so in this way, you could say the archaeological finds really change history in the fullest sense. They change the stories that we tell about how the world came to be the way that it is. And so whereas, you know, great events today, we sometimes say they change history. What they're really changing is the future, whereas it's archaeological finds that change the past. And I want to discuss them as a way also of expanding our idea of history as a discipline and a field of knowledge, and something I've been trying to do repeatedly all through these podcasts over the past few years, break down the traditional notion of history as based exclusively on written documents or texts. That's the kind of 18th, 19th century, basically German notion of historical research that still kind of delimits what we customarily think of as history. It's only history if, it, if you're drawing on written documents. And for a long time, there's been kind of a wall between the historical discipline and archaeology, art history, paleontology, all of these fields that deal with physical objects or visual material, which really are just as valid means of understanding and reconstructing the past as written documents are. You just have to use different methods and different ways of interpreting them. So I think that this is a way of of kind of opening and enriching what you consider to be history, to take archaeology seriously and to see archaeology as continuous with the discipline of history. So I'm going to start with Sutton Hoo. And, of course, I was prompted to think about Sutton Hoo partly because of the recent Netflix movie called The Dig, which is a fairly fictionalized version of the initial excavation at Sutton Hoo in 1938 and 39. Part of why I was really dissatisfied with that movie is that you learn just about nothing about what was found at Sutton Hoo, or why it was such a big deal. You know, it's a lot like these endless biopics that have been made about Queen Elizabeth I, which go on and on about her love affairs, which may be interesting, but they are not the reason why she was an important and remarkable person. 
Likewise, you know, these sort of romances between people around the dig site in Suffolk are not the reason why Sutton Hoo was such a big deal. And you really don't get, I think, any sense of that from the movie. So to step back, Sutton Hoo is definitely the most important archaeological find that's ever been made in Great Britain or in the British Isles. It is arguably the most important and impactful archaeological find ever made in Europe. It's the most revealing source of knowledge that's ever been uncovered about the so-called Dark Age, the very mysterious period after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire from about the 5th to 8th centuries. And it is the first revelation or the first confirmation of a powerful, flourishing society that existed in the Dark Age in Britain. So the significance of Sutton Hoo is twofold. On the one hand, there's a political ramification when it comes to Sutton Hoo. The finds from this burial of treasure serve as a symbol of England and the English state. And as I'm going to explain, it is not a coincidence that these ancient English objects and treasures with their enormous symbolic value were discovered right on the eve of World War II. And indeed, the dig had to be hurried up in order to excavate as much as possible before war finally broke out between Great Britain and Germany. And the site of the dig had to be covered over so that the field itself, that exact field, could be used for tank exercises in preparation for a possible German invasion, while the treasure was taken to London and stored away for several years in a tube of the London underground to try to protect it from the German bombing of Great Britain. So this is not a coincidence. The atmosphere of the lead-up to war is part of why the discovery was made in the first place. And right from the beginning, even before any treasure was found, there was this kind of great political charge around it. It also has tremendous significance for the disciplines of archaeology and history. So the finds at Sutton Hoo served as a vindication of a new discipline that was still coming into its own, the field of systematic and historically-minded archaeology which seeks to reconstruct the past in basically the same sense as historians. So in the time of Sutton Hoo, archaeology was really forming and being articulated as a field of investigation alongside or in parallel, but separate from academic history. And this new archaeology looks for context and chronology. And in this way, it's very different from traditional antiquarianism. It, in a way, it, it grew out of antiquarianism, especially imperial and colonial antiquarianism, which is more or less just the hunt for beautiful, valuable, and exotic things, which then are usually taken out of their context and in many cases brought back then to imperial centers to be displayed in places like the British Museum, which is the same thing that was done with ultimately with the Sutton Hoo treasures. But unlike that earlier antiquarianism, the new archaeology is methodical and systematic. It often is aimed more at finding clues of dating, like 
shards of pottery than just splendorous, beautiful, valuable objects. And really, you can see the evolution extending further back than that, that ultimately all of these activities began from simple grave robbing and pillaging, right? looking for signs of the possibility of buried treasure or artifacts. And that initial grave robbing and pillaging, which happened frequently all through the Middle Ages and the early modern era, was mainly only interested in materials for their basic value of the physical materials, gold, silver, gemstones, and so on. And the targets were chosen for their possible market value. From that, antiquarianism, which developed in many ways in the colonies overseas. This was aimed more at finding objects for collecting and display and to show off the knowledge and status and power of the collector. And it became common in the 1700s, for instance, for people to create curio cabinets to display their own collections of beautiful exotic objects from around the world. And this, I would argue, gradually evolved in the 18 and early 1900s into what we think of now as archaeology. And archaeology can still have many of the same sort of elements and may have some similar motives, showing off wealth, power, knowledge, control of territory. But it does make more of a systematic effort to reconstruct the past and to put things into a context, a historical context, not just to collect and display them you can see this changeover from antiquarianism to archaeology as part of a broader shift in thinking, which happened gradually in the 1800s, a shift between what Foucault would call different epistemes from classification, which was kind of the great obsession of the 18th century, right? Finding things, classifying them, labeling them, like Linnaeus making his elaborate sort of family tree of living organisms in their different kingdoms and phylums and classes. From that to history being the sort of fundamental metaphor and model for knowledge. And that's when you have people talking about things like natural history as their term for science and trying to describe histories of languages or histories of the earth in the new geology. So with this kind of shift in thinking from classification as the basic template of knowledge to history, you can see a shift then from treating objects as specimens to be sorted and classified and displayed, a lot like you would sort and classify and display animals or plants, to putting objects into narratives. Who created them, when, and why, and how do they fit into sort of the story of the rise and fall of different societies. This new archaeology, again, it developed largely as a part of or an extension of imperialism, the desire to understand and control and describe societies overseas in order to govern them and exploit them. But in the 20th century, this discipline of archaeology, as it developed in places like Egypt and India, then turned home and more and more was applied to European countries themselves. And Sutton Hoo was really the first major success of this new kind of archaeological discipline turned inward on European countries themselves. And in that way, it fits into this 
20th century milieu of fascination with folklore, folk mythology, folk magic, and the desire to excavate metaphorically the deep history, the kind of unwritten underlying history of European societies. And as I've argued in other places, this you can see as a kind of turning of the imperial anthropological project of describing so-called primitive societies in the colonies then being turned onto Europe itself. So Sutton, who arguably was the, the pinnacle and maybe the climax of this project, of excavating the European nations themselves and trying to find a kind of underlying power and unity um, beneath the written historical record. Okay, so that's a little description of why is Sutton Hoo such a big deal? Why is it one of the most important archaeological finds ever made? Well, how was this find, how did it come about? How did these circumstances, this atmosphere lead to this specific discovery? Well, the pivotal woman behind it all is named Edith Pretty. And if you watch The Dig, you, you see her portrayed by Carrie Mulligan. She was significantly older than she was made to appear in the movie. In the 1930s, she was a well-to-do widow in her 50s who had a lot of difficulties. She was having a, a difficult go of things, as you might say, in the 30s. She had ill health, which uh, would eventually end her life not long after. And meanwhile, at the same time, she was responsible for caring for a young son. So who was she and where had she come from? Well, she had been raised in the late Victorian upper middle class, exactly the sort of milieu that was very interested in folklore and antiquarianism. And she had been well-educated for a woman of that time. She had traveled abroad. Her family believed in the value of travel and encounter with foreign lands. She went to Italy and Egypt as a young woman and witnessed archaeological excavations going on in those countries. So she had an early exposure to an interest in archaeology. She lived largely independently for much of her life and married fairly late at the age of 42 to a British military officer and then had a son. So she was an unusually older mother, which then put her in a very difficult position when less than 10 years later, her husband died and she had to care for her own uh, ailing health and her very young son. Among her assets, she had a very nice house. Her husband had bought an English country manor house called Tranmer House, which was located near the River Deben in Suffolk which is a county northeast of London, not too far from London, on the eastern coast of England in the general region that is traditionally called East Anglia, which tends to be very flat and fairly rich agricultural land uh, and very town-centered. It's the area of England that most of the Puritans came from. So she had this house, Tranmer House, with a good deal of open land along the River Deben in Suffolk. When her husband died in her grief, she turned to spiritualism, which was a fairly popular sort of quasi-religious movement, particularly among the Victorian and early 20th century middle class, where people who were called mediums 
professed that they could communicate by various means with the spirits of the dead. And it was not terribly unusual for well-educated middle and upper class Britons, especially ladies, to look into spiritualism as a response to deaths in their family. And it seems that Mrs. Pretty became an enthusiast and supported a local faith healer and a spiritualist church. Now, the estate where she lived, it's not surprising that a lady who was interested in archaeology and also in spiritualism, which encouraged the idea that great wisdom and and power in life could be derived from contact with the dead, it's not surprising that she was interested in possible relics of the ancient past on her own estate. So the general area of her estate around Tranmer House was traditionally called Sutton Hoo, and that's a very old Anglo-Saxon name that basically means a high promontory. So a hoo is a high point near Sutton, the southern town, wherever that was. And around Sutton Hoo, there were clusters of mounds, just simple round earthen mounds, which were not unlike others that could be seen in various places around England, especially East Anglia. Nobody knew what they were, but there was speculation that they might be Roman tumuli, or sort of tombs half set into the earth, which could be seen around Britain and other places in Europe, or alternatively that they might be Viking burial mounds. And Vikings had built various sorts of earthworks around burial sites, mostly in Scandinavia, but also in a few places in England. So it was reasonable to suppose that these mounds might be from one of those eras, the Roman or the time of the Vikings, when they were invading and colonizing eastern England in the 800s and 900s. Most of these mounds at Sutton Hoo, as well as most of the other ancient burial mounds around England, had at one point or another been dug into and raided. That was just the normal common pattern. If there was a site that looked ancient and that seemed as if it could be a burial like a tumulus, then at some point somebody would sneak in at night, dig in, look for any any gold mainly or anything else of value and pull it out. So it was clear that this had already happened to at least some of the mounds at Sutton Hoo and possibly all of them. But nonetheless, Edith Pretty was interested, and supposedly, according to later accounts, at some point a guest at Tranmer House told her that she had seen a ghostly warrior on horseback sort of riding around the grounds and on the mounds. If this did happen, it might have been a further stimulus to her interest and her curiosity. And so early in 1938, Edith Pretty decided, even though it was clear that the mounds had already been dug into and probably raided, she still wanted them to be thoroughly excavated just in case there was anything interesting to find there and just in hopes of possibly identifying how old they were. So in the early spring of 1938, she started asking around in her sort of middle-class social circle of ladies in Suffolk for an excavator, someone with the experience and know-how, to dig into the mounds methodically and try to date them according to the current methods of archaeology. 
And the recommendation she got was for Basil Brown, who was a self-educated, self-trained so-called excavator. So you could say a sort of non-academically certified archaeologist who had a good deal of experience, particularly around Suffolk in this sort of landscape of low marshy fields and meadows near the seacoast, who had a good deal of experience dealing with ancient archaeological finds. So archaeology, as I said at this time, it was still a new art. It was not totally formalized. There weren't that many people with formal institutional academic training in it. And so Basil Brown was pretty nearly as good a professional as you were likely to find at this time. And it happens that in 1938, the Ipswich Museum in Suffolk wanted to engage him to excavate a Roman villa that had been found in that area. But nonetheless, he put aside that offer and instead, for whatever reason, accepted Edith Pretty's engagement to stay at Tranmer House and in return for food, lodging and a little bit of money, excavate the mounds around Sutton Hoo. So the excavations began on a small scale in the late spring and summer of 1938. And it was very clear that the biggest mound, the most interesting one, which we call Mound 1, had already been dug into and robbed. So rather than beginning there, instead, Basil Brown, with help, started looking into the other smaller mounds around it in hopes of finding something revealing. And he did so with mainly with the help of Edith Pretty's gamekeeper and gardener. And they used simple household items. There, you know, there was no sophisticated archaeological equipment around yet. So they used simple objects like garden tools, like trowels, and kitchen tools like pastry brushes to look layer by layer into some of the smaller mounds. And they found mainly fragments of glass and metal and a chunk of what was possibly an axe. So it was clear that something interesting had been deposited here intentionally in these mounds, probably as burial goods. Anything else that might have been intact or that might have been valuable, made of gold or silver, had long been robbed away. But the most important object that they happened to find in one of these mounds was an iron ship's rivet of the sort that was used to hold together large, curving wood planks on a seagoing ship. And this looked roughly similar to what one would find in a large Viking boat or ship burial, such as had been found previously in Sweden. So this in and of itself suggested that maybe there was a Viking boat or ship burial here at some point in one of these mounds. But the rivet didn't exactly match what you might have expected to find in Sweden, and it seemed as if it might even be a bit older in conjunction with these other somewhat crude uh, fragments that they'd found. They guessed that it might be possible that these mounds were not Viking but a bit older from the Anglo-Saxon age. So this in and of itself, just this suggestion or possibility, caused a lot of excitement and certainly made Basil Brown determined to continue the excavations again once the weather allowed the following summer. You know, the, the autumns and winters in East Anglia are very wet, as they are over most of England. And if any excavation outdoors is going to happen at all, it really can only be in the summer months. 
But after he covered over the openings he'd made into the smaller mounds, he soon after became determined, uh, along with Edith Pretty, to look into Mound 1, if only for the possibility that there might be some sign of Anglo-Saxon activity. So why would this be such a big deal? Well, Anglo-Saxon, you may know it's a slightly controversial term in some quarters, but historically speaking, when we talk about the Anglo-Saxon age in a scholarly context, it's a loose, broad term for a sort of melange of different Germanic tribes, basically from the Baltic area, what's now Germany, Denmark, Sweden, who migrated across the North Sea and gradually invaded and colonized in eastern Britain, basically into the whole area that's now England. And this general sort of assortment of groups is very mysterious. There are hardly any written records from this age in Britain that tell us anything about who the Anglo-Saxons were or what they did, what they were up to. And the only surviving written documents that that there are come not from the Anglo-Saxons themselves, but from their opponents or rivals, the sort of Romano-British Britons, as they were called at that time, who previously inhabited Britain before the Anglo-Saxon migration. So the only extensive chronicle or narrative of this age is by a Romano-British monk named Gildas, who hated the Anglo-Saxons because they were heathens and he was a Christian. And he actually emigrated before the end of his life out of Britain to France. So he basically just has a a fairly short, not very detailed narrative saying the Anglo-Saxons are barbarians, they're heathens, (laughs) and they're destroying Britain. And there's not very much we can pull from that. There are also some Welsh bardic poems from this time, such as Egododin, which may have been written in the late 500s. And then there are later Latin chronicles by both Britons and Anglo-Saxons, but those date from the 700s or later, such as the most important being uh, the monk Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English People. And Bede was an Anglo-Saxon or a Christian monk of Anglo-Saxon extraction. And then later there's the Welsh Historia Britannum. But again, these come from two or three hundred years after the beginning of this Anglo-Saxon migration, and they only give us very limited second and third hand information. So there are no good surviving sources left by Anglo-Saxon people themselves, unless you count a few Anglo-Saxon poems like Cadman's Hymn that were passed down and recorded in later years, but they really don't tell us anything about social or political events. So there are really no good written accounts. If you're speaking according to the traditional definition of history, there's really no history of the Anglo-Saxons. There's no contemporary written account of who they were, why they came over to Britain, how they lived, how they ruled, or anything like that. So you have to turn to physical remains, right? non-written sources, and there's not very much of that either. The Anglo-Saxons did not build buildings in stone. They just built timber and earthwork houses, including round houses and small shrines, all of which are long gone. And it's extremely hard to even find 
the remains or imprints of where they once were. You have to somehow discern post holes in the earth with very subtle differences in shades of dirt. There is really nothing from the Anglo-Saxon age that in any way compares to Roman buildings or even many pre-Roman Iron Age sites have bigger, more dramatic imprints. You know, we can say more about how the Neolithic farmers who created Stonehenge, about how they built their monumental structures than we can about the Anglo-Saxons. So really, to learn anything about how they lived, what they did, who they were, we have to look at smaller remaining material objects out of durable materials like gold. But most of what survives from the Anglo-Saxon age comes from burials. That's where large collections of these sorts of objects were deposited in the earth. But the locations of these burials tend to be unmarked. And when they are marked, maybe by a big mound, they've usually been found and raided over the years. And once they are raided, those very durable materials made of things like gold are then torn apart and melted down for the materials. So very few of them survive. So for all these reasons, Sutton Hoo really completely transformed the picture of Anglo-Saxon society because it was the first find, aside from being incredibly huge and rich and impressive artistically, it was the first find of Anglo-Saxon artifacts in situ, in the place where they had been deposited and intact. Sutton Hoo is the first time that any kind of Anglo-Saxon life, uh, their rituals, their habits, their eating or drinking, their clothing, anything like this, or their beliefs, their spiritual or cosmic beliefs could be reconstructed at all. And even still today, when we talk about the Anglo-Saxon people, the Anglo-Saxon age, we constantly have to refer back to Sutton Hoo. And in addition to that, Edith Pretty and Basil Brown and their associates surely saw the great political significance of a possible Anglo-Saxon find. So even as the Anglo-Saxons were so mysterious and this Dark Age formed such a blank in the historical narrative, Nonetheless, they were seen as the root of Englishness, of the English identity, the state and nation, and the English monarchy, which still existed in the 1930s. So there's a great irony here of the fact that, that so much ideological and political weight was placed on the Anglo-Saxons at the same time that they were the most unknown period of British history. And people still, despite knowing so little about the Anglo-Saxons, they were still connected, particularly through language. The English language is derived from this kind of Anglo-Saxon creole formed from these different Germanic dialects and languages that were being brought across the sea. So there was tremendous motivation, of course, to want to fill in that gap. And as I said, it's no coincidence that this was happening just before World War II. And the discovery of Anglo-Saxon remains could serve as a way of rallying the nation, inspiring patriotism through a connection and continuity from the past. This was especially crucial in the 1930s during the, the rise of Hitler, when there was great division and ambivalence in Great Britain over how to confront and how to deal with Hitler. And there was still a very strong strain of pacifism 
and of aversion to war after the tremendous waste and catastrophe of World War One. So to overcome that reluctance and resistance to a renewed war, people like, say, for instance, Winston Churchill called on this sort of mythic glory of Britain and of also of the English language, which gave them a sense of connection to the Anglo-Saxons. Edith Pretty herself was a very patriotic woman. She was a military widow. She clearly saw this excavation as a public service to the nation. And the small finds in 1938 that suggested a possible Anglo-Saxon origin, they came just a few months after Hitler's annexation of Austria in March 1938. And the political tension only continued to escalate as they had to sit and wait through the winter of 1938 to 39. So the Munich conference where Britain had to somehow balance exactly how or how much to restrain Hitler's expansionism, that took place in September 1938. The Kristallnacht pogroms happened in November 1938. And all this time, this uh, tension and this possible march towards war is building up until May 1939. With great hope and excitement, Edith Pretty insists that Basil Brown begin excavating Mound One, the big one. And in May 1939, as Brown started to examine this mound, he found something very significant and possibly promising. He found that the mound itself had been eroded and deformed because of farming in the neighboring field. So as farmers through the centuries had plowed these fields, they had eaten away a bit at the base of Mound One, and it had partly eroded and collapsed. Hence, it had shrunken to a bit smaller than it would have been otherwise. So it was probably originally much bigger than how it was seen in 1939. And it was decentered. This erosion had been asymmetrical. Hence, the peak of the mound was off to the side of where it might have been a thousand or so years previously. And for this reason, although it was clear that grave robbers at some point had dug into the mound, they had misunderstood where the true center of the mound was. They had dug in from the peak and found nothing because they had missed where the real burial would have been in the original center of the mound. So as Brown began to excavate, he started to find more of these ship rivets, indicating the possible presence of a very large ship. And he also found subtle variations in the color and texture of the earth, which was something he only could have been sensitive to due to his experience. Simple grave robbers would not have known to look for this. So as he found these sort of layers of pinkish packed earth, he understood that those were the remnants of a long decayed wooden ship. And so using the colors and textures of the earth and the ship rivets, he was able to uncover what you might call the imprint of a long decayed wooden ship which ultimately, when fully excavated, turned out to be 27 meters or 89 feet long. So we're talking about a very, (laughs) a very large seagoing ship. And a discovery like that was absolutely unprecedented in Britain and really unprecedented anywhere outside of Sweden, where other fairly large 
ship burials from the Viking Age had been found. And once again, it seemed possible that this could still be a Viking ship. But from uh, the design, the layout, the, the form of the ship rivets, it did look a bit different as well, and hence could also be older. So although Basil Brown was working almost alone, sort of on the, under the watchful eye of Edith Pretty and with the help of her other employees, nonetheless, the rumors did get out about a large, unprecedented ship burial being uncovered at Sutton Hoo, and a curator at the Ipswich Museum even notified the press that a major find was being uncovered, much to the chagrin of Edith Pretty, who wanted to keep the existence of this massive excavation private and safe. And so they quickly experienced problems of onlookers and gawkers coming onto the grounds, and the real danger then really was robbers and the possibility that uh, thieves would come and and dig in just in hopes of finding treasure. So now uh, Pretty had to somehow spend money and employ guards to guard the site. So quickly the situation was spiraling out of control, and Pretty asked for advice from experts at museums and at Cambridge University. And Charles Phillips, an archaeologist who was a professor at Cambridge, came and viewed the site and was naturally astonished. He spoke with the Government Office of Works, and the Office of Works appointed him and put him in charge then of the excavation with a team of his colleagues and students who could excavate according to the professional standards of the time, such as they were. Now, this changeover has been slightly misrepresented in the movie The Dig. In fact, Phillips was reportedly very respectful and appreciative towards Basil Brown, who had begun the excavation in a highly professional and methodical way, unimpeachably. Uh, but the fact is, the, the site was simply too big and too valuable for Basil to handle on his own. And the advantage that Phillips could bring in was a team that could work together methodically and professionally and quickly with more than just three sets of hands. So the main object that Phillips and Basil Brown and the rest of the team set about trying to find was, of course, the burial chamber which is what you would find in Swedish ship burials. At some point, an enclosed wooden chamber would have been built into the boat to house the body of the deceased and whatever valuable grave goods were being deposited with them. So this is the big object that they are anxious to find over the summer of 1939, and they're working increasingly at a rushed pace knowing that not only will the fall weather be coming soon, but very likely war with Germany was imminent. And again, not coincidentally, Sutton Hoo would be right in the line of fire of possible German attack or invasion, being located on this low, flat plain facing the North Sea. It was part of, you could say, the vulnerable, uh, soft underbelly of the island of Great Britain. And just as it had been an easy landing point for the invasions of Anglo-Saxons and of Vikings, likewise, it was at risk of being a landing point again for a German invasion. So they are working at a rushed pace. And by midsummer, students 
working with Charles Phillips, began to find small inlaid gold jewels. The first large object to be uncovered was a large gold belt buckle with very intricate knotwork in a serpentine pattern. And this turned out to be only the beginning of a series, a whole collection of spectacular finds in what must have been the burial chamber area. So what was found within the ship burial site of Mound 1? Well, there was a series of locally made jewels and personal items, which are of incredible, intricate and precise craftsmanship, mostly made of gold with sophisticated inlays in the form customarily called cloisonne, but mainly inlaid with red gemstones called garnet. Alongside these locally made Anglo-Saxon artifacts, there was a series of imported decorative objects of various origins, some of them quite far away. There were some weapons, some cooking and drinking vessels, a collection of gold coins, and most famously of all, fragments of a helmet made of iron and tin. So all of these objects, as you can tell, were made from metal or from gemstones like garnet, all organic materials like wood and leather had decayed in the damp and acidic soil of Sutton Hoo. They had all been eaten away. And this fact might explain then the absence of a body. So whereas in the ship burials in Sweden, one always found some sort of human remains, maybe a skeleton, maybe just teeth, which are the strongest uh, part of the body, the most durable, Nothing coming from a human body was uncovered in what was ostensibly the burial chamber in this ship burial at Sutton Hoo. So to look more specifically, why were these objects significant? Beginning with the objects made of gold. There were jewels such as brooches, which were common for fixing robes in both the the Roman and early medieval era. These uh, brooches and buttons were inset with stones and gems, mainly garnet, which probably had been mined originally in India or in the general area of South Asia and traded over thousands of miles through the Byzantine world into Europe. When one looks at these jewels and fixtures that were most likely made by highly respected, skilled Anglo-Saxon craftsmen, It's really unbelievable that they're not machine-made. Incredible precision is uncanny for something coming from before the, the machine age. They were probably made, as I said, by honored, respected craftsmen. And we do know from some early medieval records and chronicles that there were specific sort of celebrity goldsmiths who were particularly honored and recorded by name. Um, However, we can't match any specific goldsmith with these specific objects. There are no sort of stamps or signature. There also is the inlaid gold purse lid. So the sort of top enclosing flap of a what was probably a large leather purse carried around the waist. And this purse lid also is elaborately worked in gold and inlaid with the forms of boars and other animals. 
The sack itself was probably made of leather, but is long gone, has long decayed in the soil. It seems in the purse, there was a large collection of gold coins, all of them Frankish from the Frankish Empire on the mainland of Europe. And each gold coin had been struck in a different mint somewhere in the Frankish Empire. So this collection was intentionally ostentatious, showing off the ability of whoever this person was to collect valuable objects. And finally, at one side of this burial chamber, there was a sword. And the sword had a jeweled handle, again, made of gold. And the guard and pommel are elaborately inlaid with garnets and other precious stones. There was an iron blade of the sword, which is mostly corroded away. Only remnants remain. And also on the pommel, one can see places where the gold decorative beading has been worn down by probably by the touch of a hand resting on top of it. So it does seem that this sword was actually used or at least worn ceremonially quite a bit by an actual living person before it was then deposited in the burial. So those are the gold objects. Apart from those, there are various other objects of other metals in varying states of survival or decay. There is a large round silver platter that was made in Constantinople in the Byzantine Empire, and it bears the stamp of the Byzantine emperor. So it may have been possibly a, a diplomatic gift at some point. There are cauldrons and cooking pots of various materials, metal and ceramic. There are drinking vessels. There are two silver baptismal spoons labeled Saul and Paul in Greek. So they may have also been made in the Byzantine Empire, which was, of course, a Greek-speaking Christian empire. And there are remnants or imprints of other objects that were in various states of decay, such as a pair of shoes, a series of pillows and cushions, and a large decorated shield with animal fixtures, decorated with animal fixtures, and a lyre, the musical, stringed musical instrument. Now, lastly, the last object to be recognized is probably the most famous and iconic. Archaeologists found scattered pieces of a helmet made of iron and tin with elaborate embossed decorations on the tin surface. And the tin, and especially the iron, had rusted and corroded quite a bit first before then being crushed to pieces, probably when the burial chamber itself collapsed. And so in order to get a sense of what the helmet looked like, it had to be laboriously reassembled from the hundreds of fragments. And this was done twice with different results each time. So that's a basic rundown of what was found in the burial chamber of Mound 1. What does all of this mean? What are the historical implications? And what can we reconstruct about the people who created and then buried these objects? Well, firstly, as for the burial itself, it centered on a large timber ship, long and wide with a very shallow draft. So it probably could have floated on water, displacing no more than about two feet of water, much like later Viking ships, which also were made to have shallow drafts in order to be able to sail up rivers and estuaries. 
And so it makes sense that this ship probably floated on the River Deben nearby before it was then dragged by ropes or pulleys up a course to the promontory of Sutton Hoo. The ship had a towering prow at both ends, so it would have stuck up imposingly over the water and over the horizon when it was dragged up to Sutton Hoo. There is no mast for sails on this ship. Rather, there seem to have been loopholes around the sides for oars, and large teams of several dozen people probably rowed this ship. So it most likely, when it was used on the water, it was probably a very imposing and even frightening sight, and it displayed the power of this leader, whoever they were. The fact that they had command over these teams of underlings to row them up and down the river. So once the ship was dragged up onto the promontory of Sutton Hoo, it seems that the grave goods were then carefully placed and arranged in the center of the boat. They probably were viewed openly for some time as part of mourning or funeral rites. Then the burial chamber was built on top, sort of over the center of the hull, like a little house. Then the earth was carried up and mounded over it to totally submerge the burial chamber. But the towering bow and stern were left sticking out of the earth, probably in order to remain visible from the surrounding country and from the river nearby. It seems that the chamber enclosed in the earth with these objects in it remained for several years, maybe as long as a couple hundred years, before it finally caved in with the, the sort of seeping weight of water and earth. And when that happened, all the objects, whatever their previous arrangement might have been, were flattened down onto the surface of the hull of the ship, where they then remained for more than a thousand years after. And this is the point where the helmet, as I mentioned, which was already rusted and corroded, was crushed into many pieces. So if this is how the burial happened, what does that show us? Well, for one thing, it demonstrates that the custom, the practice of ship burial, which was already common in Scandinavia, particularly in Sweden, carried over to Britain. And with it, probably it went hand in hand with the belief in an afterlife located across the sea, across a sea channel. And the mourners probably believed that the ship served to carry the body and soul of the dead person across this sea to the land of the afterlife, the sort of Elysian fields, you might call it. And other smaller boat burials somewhat like this have been found since in various places around Britain, including others around Sutton Hoo. As I already mentioned, a, a boat rivet was found in one of the other smaller mounds, and so other uh, smaller boat burials have been found in that area. The person who was buried, and we can suppose most likely it was a man, this man was equipped for this travel and transition to the afterlife. He had with him various goods for fighting, for feasting, both of which were essential activities of rulership. He also was sent off with some money. And all of this reflects then the common pre-Christian belief that the social order, and that a person's social status and relationships carried over from the world of the living to the afterlife. 
And this was in contrast to later Christian teachings that all people are spiritually equal and that there will be no differentiation in the kingdom of heaven. The pre-Christian or in quotation marks pagan beliefs of Northern Europe were that the social order carries over. And hence, the fact that this person, whoever they were, were memorialized with these symbols of power, like the sword, the helmet, and with money, with equipment for holding feasts, this indicates that this person almost surely was royal, was a ruler or a member of a ruling house, and moreover that they were a major, rich, powerful potentate, able to call on enormous resources of gold, labor, and workmanship. Specifically, if we look at the belt buckle, that gold knot work belt buckle that was the first large find from the ship burial, the mass of this gold buckle is 300 shillings of gold in the traditional Anglo-Saxon measuring system. And it happens that early medieval documents record that 300 shillings was the life price of a nobleman, the next highest status rank a person could have short of being the king. So if we think back to the Dark Age and the early Middle Ages, Justice was largely handled by means of vergeld, funds of gold, from which someone could pay out fines and fees to compensate for crimes against another family or clan. And there are early documents recording the vergeld prices of different crimes. And killing a peasant might be, say, 50 or 60 gold shillings to, to compensate. For a nobleman, it was 300 shillings of gold. And probably before that, that derives from the traditional price of a, a thane or a, a companion of the king. So wearing a gold belt buckle of exactly 300 shillings clearly had symbolic weight to it. So when a king hosted a feast in his mead hall, as described in Anglo-Saxon stories and chronicles, if he was wearing this belt buckle, he could have been sending the message that I am so rich and powerful that I could easily dispose of one of you or even kill one of you and just pay off uh, the price of it casually with the object I'm wearing on my belt. Now, as for dating, the vessels and pottery give us some clues. The imperial stamp on the silver platter from Constantinople gives us a rough age. And most of all, the coins, dating the various coins that had been struck in the Frankish Empire, allow us to guess pretty well that this burial must have happened in the 620s, maybe around roughly the year 627, 28 could be our best guess. So that raises the possibility, can we identify who was buried in this ship, or at least whom it was memorializing. And we really cannot know for certain. But if we look into Bede's Chronicle, which I mentioned before, which he wrote in the 700s, describing the Christian conversion of the Anglo-Saxon people, there is one character who stands out as our most likely candidate, and that was King Raedwald of East Anglia, the ruler of that kingdom in the early 600s, who reportedly died in 625. So it makes sense that 
whatever ruler was buried at Sutton Hoo, they were very likely a king of East Anglia, which was the Anglo-Saxon kingdom in that region. And it especially makes sense that it would have been Raidwald because of the date. And Bede says that Raidwald possessed an imperium among the various Anglo-Saxon kings in Britain. And this Latin word imperium, you know, we relate it to the word empire, but at that time it seems to have meant something more like primacy or supremacy. So at different times during the Heptarchy, during the rule of the seven kingdoms, the seven Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, different kingdoms would arise to prominence and would if they could manage it, would demand signs of fealty and submission from the other kings. And this sort of supremacy could be passed around at different times. You know, early on it was Northumbria, later Mercia. Well, for this brief period under Raidwald, it seems that he had a primacy, or what Bede calls an imperium. So it makes sense that he specifically, or his allies and his family, would have wanted to show off his special wealth and power with an elaborate burial. And lastly, Raidwald, according to Bede, Raidwald sort of dabbled into Christianity. He may have formally converted and been baptized, but also backslid and tried to have Christianity and older pagan beliefs and cults side by side. Why not have both? But this also, for reasons I'll talk about later, seems to fit the things that were found in the grave. It's clear that this ruler was, of course, showing off their power, their ability to collect through extensive trade and diplomacy, and also they were showing off their wealth and power by burying it under the earth. It showed that <laughs> despite the great value of all of this gold and silver and precious stones, the kingdom was rich enough that they could dispose of it. So it really gives, you could say, a new meaning to conspicuous consumption. And then also... In the ship, as I said, was found a lyre, this musical instrument. And this also tends to suggest kingship, because we know that the Anglo-Saxons were a highly poetic society. And we have these poems like Cadman's Hymn and the later epic of Beowulf, which sometimes celebrate uh, religious beliefs, but also often celebrate kings and warriors and heroes. And we can suppose that possibly this lyre was actually used uh, in this royal court while reciting epics or poems praising the ruler or his ancestors. Now, furthermore, the, the burial, in all of these ways, it seems to fit what we would more or less expect from a rich, powerful Anglo-Saxon ruler like Raidwald. But in addition, there's a sort of blending of forms and styles which suggests that this specific burial may have been transitional. It may have been from a point in time when a new meaning was being assigned to power and kingship. And maybe even you could speculate that's why the burial was so rich and elaborate, is because it was trying to make some statement. It may have been trying to send an intentional message about the intercombination or the changeover of different styles and meanings of kingship. And this sort of intercombination can be seen in particular in the helmet. So the famous helmet shows firstly a combination of Roman and Germanic symbolism. The basic shape of 
the helmet is Roman, based on a Roman general's parade helmet. But if you look at the decorative motifs, it's very complicated. They are highly complex with different panels showing different sort of scenes. And there's a combination, it seems, of different sources. For one thing, there are scenes of a warrior on horseback trampling over an enemy, both of them holding spears. And this is very closely reminiscent of scenes in Roman and even more ancient Mediterranean art of the the sort of conquering ruler uh, overcoming his enemies. There are also animal figures, uh, including boars and eagles. And if you look at the face on the helmet, there's a sort of effigy face on it as it's been reconstructed. And the features of the face, the nose, the mustache, the brows over the eyes, form a winged creature, like a winged dragon, where the the nose is the body, the mustache is the tail, the eyebrows are the wings, and then a dragon's head is affixed into the forehead. So this is all very reminiscent of pre-Christian Northern European art with the the symbol the animals as symbols of power and authority and the way that the the dragon design is integrated into the mask of the helmet suggests that the wearer of the helmet is supposed to take on a kind of fearsome animal persona when wearing it there are also scenes of paired warriors on foot And these pairs of warriors in these little symmetrical scenes are wearing large horned headdresses. And they're shown in an odd pose facing towards one another with one foot dragging or limping on the ground. So these scenes are usually described as a sort of dance. But you might guess if you've listened to some of my previous lectures I would theorize that this scene is supposed to be shamanic. There are many stories uh, and accounts of shamanic figures, figures who are believed to travel to the world of the dead, communicate with the dead, who have a limp, who walk in a limping or shuffling gait, and whose feet or legs are somehow uneven. And you can even think of Greek legends of heroes who are somehow part mortal, part human, like Achilles, And there's something uneven about their legs or their feet. You know, Achilles has the one vulnerable heel. There are many sort of instances of this theme. So I would say that this this scene on the Sutton Hoo helmet is probably another variation on this same theme of the, the shaman who takes on some sort of animal form, in this case with the horned headdresses, and who limps or shuffles as a mark of the fact that they are part living, part dead. And you could say they have one foot in the spirit world and one foot in the living world. So from that, we can suppose from the animal motifs and from this shamanic scene of horned warriors, we could speculate that the helmet itself may have had a kind of shamanic ceremonial role. And this should not be surprising if it was the helmet of a king. Medieval kings are sometimes described as being quasi-shamanic and having some sort of special connection to the heavenly world. There are, you know, there's the tradition of kings in England and France having a healing touch, the king's touch. So it makes sense that the king who wore the helmet was possibly supposed to take on a sort of animal supernatural persona, maybe a dragon persona, 
was supposed to be seen as fearsome and otherworldly. And the helmet actually, archaeologists, experimental archaeologists have made replicas of the helmet. And a person who wears the helmet, it amplifies their voice and makes it into a more booming, resonant voice. And possibly the ruler who who wore it was supposed to deliver prophecy or messages from the spiritual realm, as shamans traditionally do. Now, in addition to this, I would say, very likely shamanic and ceremonial role of the helmet, it probably was also used in battle. Uh, it was, it may have functioned as a real battle helmet. It has damage and repairs on the back flap, where it may have been struck in battle. This makes sense considering that Raidwald, our likely candidate for the subject of the burial, was involved directly in at least one battle, as recorded in Bede's Chronicle. Furthermore, the style of the decoration on the helmet seems to be rather old for the Sutton Hoo burial. If we suppose the burial was in the 620s, the helmet may have been around 100 years old already when it was buried, because the, the styles and the motifs match much more closely with Northern European art from the early 500s. So again, it's very likely it did have real use during its lifetime. The design of the helmet is flexible. The head can move around in it, but it the back flap does protect the neck and throat. So it is practical for use in battle. It has a nose fixture on the mask but there are holes for the nostrils to aid in breathing so that one could conceivably wear it while doing intense exercise like fighting. And the amplification that it gives, which I already mentioned, like a little megaphone, was probably also useful for giving out commands in a battlefield. Well, if all of this is true, if it was actively used for these purposes and it seems to have fulfilled its function for as long as 100 years, this then raises the question of why then was it buried? Well, that might mark or symbolize, I would argue, a transition away from the more pagan and shamanic beliefs that the helmet symbolized. Some have speculated, and I think there's good grounds to speculate, that Raidwald or whoever was buried at Sutton Hoo may have been the last pagan king or the last overtly pagan king of East Anglia and that the ruling elites and maybe the successor of the Sutton Hoo king may have wanted to mark that those particular customs and symbols were being put aside or de-emphasized in favor of a more Christianized image of kingship. And so in this way, Sutton Hoo was not only sending off this particular king, but it was sending off the sort of symbols and accoutrements of a particular form of kingship that was no longer current. And we can see different of sort of odd intercombination of pagan and Christian elements in the burial, which is not unlike other royal Anglo-Saxon burials that have been found in more recent years. There are a lot of similarities to others. But if we look in Sutton Hoo, There's clearly a pagan sort of style to the art on the purse lid and on the shield, as well as the helmet. It's mainly the so-called animal style, the evocation of fearsome animals like boars with large tusks, eagles and falcons, and so on. But there's also the clear Christian symbol of the two baptismal spoons. 
And furthermore, if we look at the spoons, they're labeled Saulos and Paulos, the Greek forms of the names Saul and Paul. And this is a clear reference to conversion. Right? Saul of Tarsus is the man who famously converted and renamed himself Paul. So there's this evocation of the transition from non-Christian to Christian. And Bede, as I said before, asserts that Raidwald went back and forth on Christianity, that he at some point embraced Christianity, may have been baptized, but he still backslid to paganism. And if we look at the way these elements were laid out in the burial chamber, we can suppose that either there was a body laid out, or if not, the objects were placed in such a way as to evoke an imaginary body. And the helmet and the baptismal spoons, it seems, were placed on either side of the head, atop each shoulder. So you can imagine the, the pagan symbol of rulership, which is the helmet, resting on one shoulder and the Christian baptismal spoons on the other, almost like a little devil and angel sitting on the two shoulders in this sort of classic cliche, symbolizing a person being torn between conflicting impulses. So it's possible that the helmet and the spoons were intentionally placed to sort of evoke this uh, ambivalence or this kind of two-sidedness of Raidwald's rule between the pagan past and the Christian future. Hence, you could say that Sutton Hoo burial really encapsulates the Middle Ages in miniature, this sort of early ferment that gave rise to the medieval world with the blending of Roman, Germanic, and Christian elements into some sort of new synthesis. So overall, Sutton Hoo changes our image of the Dark Age in Europe and of the Anglo-Saxon Age in Britain. It shows that there was great power and wealth in these societies, despite the lack of any monuments as we would think of them, right? No grand temples, no bathhouses, no aqueducts. But there was wealth and power that could be displayed in more portable ways, in smaller objects like gold and silver and jewels. And you could say, in effect, it vindicates Beowulf, right? So Beowulf is this early medieval Anglo-Saxon epic of rulers and heroes, which, at least in the versions that we have, it was composed several hundred years later. It takes place in Sweden, and it describes what it perceives as a sort of earlier bygone age of heroism and glory and splendor, which was already passed at the time when Beowulf was composed in the 800s. And Beowulf has these descriptions of powerful kings with grand mead halls where they hold feasts and drinking and where they distribute gold to their followers. And for a long time, this sort of depiction of the Dark Age as seen in Beowulf was considered legendary and probably embellished, exaggerated, romanticized. But we, when we compare it against Sutton Hoo and the splendor of these jewels and objects and alongside the collection of drinking and cooking vessels, it does seem reasonable to suppose that Beowulf actually was pretty accurate and that it described, in some cases quite precisely, a real Anglo-Saxon era royal 
court. And even there are references to helmets with elaborate knotwork decoration, very reminiscent of the Sutton Hoo helmet. And furthermore, the form of the ship burial with the helmet as a sort of centerpiece echoes what was found in Sweden from about the same era. And likewise, this also recalls Beowulf. Beowulf is an Anglo-Saxon epic, but it takes place in Sweden. And so again, this connection and this carryover of customs, ideas, and practices of rulership from Sweden to Britain is also then repeated in the Sutton Hoo burial. So all of these finds, again, are very revealing and meaningful from the point of view of understanding the Anglo-Saxon civilization. But there is this looming question, as I mentioned before, where is the body? And what does it mean that no trace of a body was found in the excavation in 1938 to 39? There was nothing in or among the chamber artifacts, not even teeth, not even tooth enamel, which usually is the last thing to go when a body is decomposing. Well, this raised the question that perhaps this burial was in fact a cenotaph, and that is what some people supposed for many years, from the 30s through to the 1960s, that this was a cenotaph, a monument built to glorify an absent person whose body was not really being buried there, maybe because it had been cremated, which was a common custom in pre-Christian world. Maybe because it had been lost or buried at sea, maybe because it had been stolen and in some way destroyed by enemies. But for whatever reason, this monument might have been created without the actual body. However, as I said before, the acidic soil had eliminated all other organic materials like wood and leather. And so it was a question of whether that acidic corrosion could have been so powerful as to totally eliminate all trace of the body. And later, as soil science and chemistry developed, archaeologists did uh, analyze the chemical makeup of the soil in the burial chamber area, and they did find certain amounts of phosphates, which suggest some organic object like maybe a human body might have decomposed there in place. And so hence the possibility is, is still on the table that in fact the king memorialized there may have really been buried there, but every trace of the body has been decomposed. Now, regardless of whether the body was really there or not, it's clear that the arrangement of objects suggests a body. You have the sword and shield laid down at the sides. You have the helmet at one end and the remnants of a pair of shoes at the other, obviously evoking the head at one end and the feet at the other. And if we suppose that the objects were literally arranged around the body or were sort of symbolically arranged around an imaginary body, Nonetheless, their placement does have certain Im implications and suggests certain things about this person. For one thing, it seems that he was left-handed. The sword was placed on the right side of the body, and the patterns of wear suggest that a hand actually rested on this sword 
as it was worn alongside a person's body with the one face facing inward towards the person's hip, which would have been their right hip. And of course, if you are right-handed, you want your sword over on the left side so that you can quickly draw it and swing it towards your attacker. Uh, if it is on your right side, that means you are almost surely left-handed. And as I said before, the arrangement suggests possible symbol, symbolism of religious ambivalence or maybe a sort of syncretism or intercombination of beliefs that worked for the Sutton Hoo king with the uh, helmet on one shoulder and the baptismal spoons on the other. And it's I would say it's hard to imagine that the mourners did not see the sort of symbolic charge of placing these objects together in this way. So these are some of the facts and suppositions that we can extract from the find itself about who might have been buried there, what sort of life they lived, how they ruled, and what sort of society created this memorial. But as I've been stressing all along, Sutton Hoo also has had major symbolic implications for the modern world since it was discovered in 1939. And there's been a very complicated and in some ways tumultuous afterlife of the Sutton Hoo treasure. So these treasures, as they were being uncovered in the ship burial, there, there was no, again, no sophisticated, specially made equipment for archaeological digs at that time. So Edith Pretty and Basil Brown and his colleagues had to simply start packing them up in crates and boxes padded with garden moss. That was the best material that they could find to use. Initially, they just locked them away in Edith Pretty's house, but they could not stay there forever. They became more and more of a burden and a danger of robbery or burglary. So in August 1939, it was clear that something more permanent had to be done. The looming question was who properly owned them and could have custody of them. So in August 1939, just a matter of weeks before World War II began, a hearing was held in Suffolk based on the ancient treasure trove law to determine who owned these finds. And the hearing found in favor of Edith Pretty, that they had been found on her property, that they had been excavated at her behest, and that there was no one else who could claim some sort of ownership of them. So she was declared the proper legal, legal owner. And for a brief time, there was a great fear among the scholarly community in Britain that she would sell them off. She immediately got generous offers from various museums around the world. And even if she kept them within British hands, she could potentially demand an enormous price. But she didn't do so. Rather, she donated them as a free gift to the British Museum, with a few stipulations, one of them being that Basil Brown should be given credit when they were publicly displayed. So once the war began, the treasures were slowly moved out of Sutton Hoo by truck to the British Museum, where curators then had to find some way of securing and protecting them, especially as a German attack was clearly imminent. 
So the excavation sites at Sutton Hoo were carefully charted, then covered over, and during the war were re- repeatedly run over by tanks <laughs> during, during a pre-invasion exercises. The treasures were taken out of the museum's vault and put into crates and stowed in a tube of the London underground, where it was hoped that they would be safe from German bombing. After the war was over, they were uncovered again and brought back into the museum. And specifically, the fragments of the helmet were then assembled. And in 1951, the reconstructed helmet on a sort of simple molded base was brought around the country as part of the Festival of Britain, a sort of public celebration of British history and art, which moved around from city to city through the summer of 1951 as a kind of effort to bolster and restore British confidence after the devastation and deprivation of the war, and also after the loss of British colonies like India. A lot of the elites felt that Britain was losing its sort of standing and pride of place in the world. And so the Festival of Britain was an effort to to counter that, bolster up patriotism and optimism about the British future. And naturally, the Sutton Hoo helmet became sort of the central bell of the ball of this Festival of Britain. It was this tangible and striking symbol of ancient English origins and of this sort of continuing thread of English power and dignity going back into the Dark Age. So the reconstruction, the excavation and reconstruction of the helmet could be seen then as a symbol of British endurance and resilience. Shortly after, scholars pointed out that the configuration of this reconstructed helmet was probably wrong. There were various things wrong with it. The way it had been assembled together, the back flap would have been inflexible and it would have failed to protect the throat and sides of the neck. So eventually it was taken apart and a curator at the British Museum had to laboriously reassemble it all over again over the course of about a year. And that was the point where this new professional was able to figure out that the different elements of the the face arranged to form a flying dragon figure. And it has since been put on display again in the British Museum, and it is probably the most essential and iconic object of the British Museum collection, other than perhaps the Rosetta Stone. But unlike the Rosetta Stone, the Sutton Hoo helmet is British. It was found in Britain, and it was given as a free gift to the museum, and hence it's there's no danger of it being repatriated to another country from which it might have been robbed or raided or purchased by subterfuge, like objects from Egypt or Greece, like the Elgin marbles. So in a way, you could say the Sutton Hoo treasure and particularly the helmet are kind of the anchors, really, of the British Museum collection. They're the most essential thing that they will never give up. As long as there is a British Museum, it will never be given up. It will never be sold. It has become a kind of second crown jewel, really, of the British nation. And in, and in that way, you could say it's, it represents a kind of transition in what the British Museum represents or what the British Museum ought to represent in the eyes of 
the global public rather than simply an imperial museum that in the antiquarian style collects beautiful exotic objects and displays them like a massive display cabinet. That's what the British Museum is usually functioned as. Instead, it can be seen as more of a national museum displaying the achievements and the traditions of Britain itself. So by the 1960s, Sutton, who had taken on this sort of great national symbolic role, Basil Brown had been given a great deal more credit and attention. He appears in documentaries about Sutton, who from the 1960s, he was not written out like he had been uh, shortly after the war. And more excavations were undertaken from the 1960s onward as new archaeological techniques like, for instance, ground-penetrating radar came online and better soil analysis, uh, the excavation was extended. The ship hull was uncovered again to be surveyed over again and uh, plaster molds were made of it and also the wider area, smaller mounds or just traces of possible burials could be found through radar. And archaeologists found that the whole area of Sutton Hoo was in fact a long-lasting cemetery area with hundreds of burials lasting for centuries from the early Anglo-Saxon period on up into the early Middle Ages through the 700s. And these burials were both pagan and Christian they included people from wealthy elites, as well as commoners, a huge range of social status and wealth. There are other boat burials, and there are also victims, people who clearly were killed and buried on site, who may have been victims of sacrifices or may have been executed criminals. So in a way, there was no uh, boundary right, there, of what sort of person would be buried at Sutton Hoo. It was just a matter of how you were buried and with what sort of ceremony and what sort of grave goods. So the wider Sutton Hoo excavations provide another confirmation of continuity and adaptation from the pagan era into the Christian era. There's a remarkable degree of repetition and consistency of where and how people were buried, even as the religious symbolism might have changed. And in that way, it serves as a precedent and a model for many more finds and excavations all around Britain and all around Europe. And in recent decades, there's even been a, a sort of multiplication of new finds as metal detecting has been increasingly integrated into British archaeology. So precious metals like gold and silver are very likely to be buried at important burial sites. They're also the easiest to detect because of their electrical conductivity. They're the eas easiest to detect with metal detectors. And for a time, metal detectors were basically a tool of grave robbers, right, of people who just wanted to find valuable objects in the ground to then sell for their market value or just for the crude value of the gold or silver. But many metal detectorists also were genuinely interested in history and wanted to find important archaeological sites for the sake of, of knowledge and for sharing with the world. And so over the years, laws and practices around metal detecting have been adjusted so that metal detectorists can find important burial sites and then be rewarded for bringing them to light 
and uh, the this has really come to fruition most of all, most importantly, with the discovery of the Staffordshire Horde in 2009, which was first located by a metal detectorist and turned out to be the largest single hoard of Dark Age treasure ever discovered, even greater in terms of size and value than Sutton Hoo, but not as historically significant as Sutton Hoo, not as revealing and not as artistically spectacular as the Sutton Hoo treasure. And really Sutton Hoo continues to be the great watershed and the biggest, most impactful single discovery from Dark Age Britain or really from Dark Age Europe. So thank you so much for listening. If you can support and keep these lectures coming, please go to my Patreon page. And if you contribute at any level, you'll have access to all of my patron-only lectures, uh, including my last one on the myth of the Founding Fathers, and also when I continue this series in future, if I continue to make them, the next in this series on the great archaeological finds will also be patron-only. <laughs>